Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The uniform worn by a highly unorthodox doctor. The doctor made an incision in his groin area, inserted the goat testicles, sewed him up. The antique bell that heralded the arrival of a monstrous creature. No one knew what it was, so it became known as the Red Ghost. And a massive stone monolith that guards the secrets of a primitive civilization. There were mythical ideas about how the statues walked from place to place. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Seattle, Washington. Just north of downtown lies the sprawling campus of the University of Washington the proud home of the Suzalo Library. Behind its Gothic facade and stained glass windows is a vast repository of rare books, works of art, and historic documents. And in its periodicals collection is a bound volume containing this yellowing newspaper. Dated May 25, 1935, it looks like any other broadsheet of its day. But reporter Casey McNerthney knows its pages once held a vital clue to an infamous crime. The most important clue was inside in the classified section on the personal page. So what role did this classified ad play in one of the most sensational cases ever to hit Washington state? May 24th, 1935, Tacoma, Washington, 4 p.m. Lumber Baron J.P. Warehouser Jr. and his family are in a state of panic. J.P.'s son, nine-year-old George, has not arrived home from school as scheduled. His frantic parents soon notify the police, fearing their fortune has made them vulnerable to a kidnapping. Everyone knows the Warehouser family, and so there's a question of, were they a target? 6.25 p.m., a typewritten letter arrives, confirming everyone's worst fears. It is a ransom note, giving the warehousers just five days to comply with the kidnappers' demands. This note asked for $200,000 in small, unmarked bills. 
The message also warns the warehousers not to publicize George's disappearance or he will be harmed. And there's one final twist. Among the demands is the request that they place a personal ad in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer to say, we are ready to let the kidnappers know that the money is available and it has to be signed, Percy Minnie. To notify the abductors that they're planning to cooperate, JP posts an ad in the next day's paper. The same one seen in this bound volume at the Suzalo Library. The first ad that appears says, expect to be ready come Monday. Answer, Percy Minnie. Over the next two days, the warehousers scramble to assemble the ransom money. But behind the scenes, the family is also working with more than a dozen FBI agents who are methodically compiling a list of serial numbers from the unmarked bills in the hopes that this will later lead them to the culprits. Then, on May 28th, two days before the kidnapper's deadline, the family places another classified ad in the post-intelligencer that reads, We are ready, Percy Minnie. And now they have to anxiously wait to see if the kidnappers will actually hold up on their end of the bargain. Finally, two agonizing days later, JP gets a call. He is instructed to drive to a wooded area halfway between Tacoma and Seattle, leave the ransom money in the car with the engine running, and then simply walk away. JP does as he is told. He gets out of his car, walks for about 100 yards, turns around and and sees somebody hop into his sedan and speed off with the money. The warehousers have met the kidnappers' demands. But will their son be returned to them alive? June 1st. It's been almost two days since the ransom drop, and there's still no sign of George. Then, nearly 40 miles away, in the quiet town of Issaquah, there's a breakthrough in the case. There's a farmer who gets a knock on the door unexpectedly. He opens it up, there's a nine-year-old boy, and he says, I'm George Warehouser. Seven days after he was seized, George is returned to his family in Tacoma, where the FBI immediately interviews him for clues about his captors. George thinks the two men took him captive, but he doesn't know a lot about them because they wore masks. It seems their only solid lead is the ransom money itself. A list of the serial numbers from the bills is published in newspapers up and down the West Coast. Then, on June 8th, there's another break in the case. In Salt Lake City, Utah, a clerk at a Woolworth store becomes suspicious when a customer uses a $5 bill to pay for a 20-cent purchase. She checks the serial number, and sure enough, it's one of the ransom bills. The clerk alerts the Salt Lake City police, and the customer is arrested. Her name is Margaret Von Metz. She has a clean record, but her husband doesn't. Margaret Von Metz is married to a man named Harmon Metz-Whaley. And once the FBI took him in for questioning, that's when the case really started to move forward. Authorities soon find a stash of partially burned bills at the couple's home, bearing serial numbers that match the ransom money. With the evidence mounting against him, Whaley fingers a fellow ex-con, William Daynard, as his accomplice. The three are brought to trial, 
convicted, and sentenced to lengthy prison terms. But there is one more remarkable twist. During his incarceration, Harmon Metzweiler writes several letters to the Weyerhaeuser family, apologizing for his actions. And when he is finally paroled in 1963, after serving 28 years, he makes an unlikely request. He sends him another letter asking for a job, and surprisingly, the Weyerhaeuser family has compassion for him, and they give him a job at one of their plants in Oregon. And today, deep in the archives of the University of Washington's Suzzalo Library, these classified ads serve as a reminder of an infamous kidnapping and a surprising tale of redemption. Lilydale, New York. At first glance, this idyllic lakeside village, population 275, appears to be a quaint small town like any other. But according to author Barbara Weisberg, there's more to this place than meets the eye. Everyone who lives in Lilydale is a spiritualist. They believe that the spirits of human beings survive beyond the grave and communicate with the living. And in the Lilydale Museum is one rusted object that was pivotal in a tale of murder, intrigue, and the afterlife. It's a large tin trunk, much battered, and it's the kind of trunk that peddlers in the mid 19th century would carry on their backs. In fact, this aged trunk is linked to a famous clan of psychics, who claim to be able to speak with the dead. But can this antique chest actually prove that spirits do indeed exist? 1848, Hydesville, New York. John and Margaret Fox are settling into their new home in this sleepy town, with the youngest of their six children, 14-year-old Maggie and 11-year-old Kate. But any hope they have for a quiet life is short-lived. The Fox family began to hear very strange raps at night, and they looked all over the house but couldn't find the source of these raps. Finally, in a moment of desperation, young Kate Fox calls out into the darkness. She says to this mysterious rapper, "Do as I do." And she snaps her fingers, and the raps seem to imitate exactly what she does. And then Mrs. Fox says, "Are you a spirit?" And suddenly there are raps again. This seems to confirm that there is a spirit reaching out to them from beyond the grave. And before long, this became news that traveled far and wide. Night after night, neighbors visit the Fox household to behold Maggie and Kate communicating with this mysterious spirit. They devise a kind of code where a certain number of raps equals no, and a certain number of raps equals yes. So the spirit begins to be able to answer yes and no questions. Then one day, the sisters shock the crowd with a horrifying revelation. The spirit claims he is a peddler who was murdered there five years before, 
and then was taken down to the basement and buried. A cursory search of the Fox family's basement reveals no evidence of any human remains, leaving some to doubt the girl's story. But others remain intrigued and wonder if it may be possible to channel the spirits of other deceased individuals. Before long, the Fox sisters are communicating with the friends and relatives of people who live nearby. As their reputation grows, Maggie and Kate's much older sister Leah suddenly takes a renewed interest in their lives and invites them to Rochester, New York to live with her. But little do the girls know, Leah sees in their skills a path to riches. Leah sees that there's great potential here for making money. She arranges spirit communication seances. Under Leah's management, the sisters tour the country, charging fees for admission. It's exciting for them. They're attracting a lot of attention. It seems everyone from politicians to ministers is lining up to see the famous Fox sisters speak to the dead. But according to museum curator Ron Nagy, over time, animosity and resentment build among the three siblings. Leia was keeping just about all the money. The girls weren't getting anything until they were older. She was very controlling. But Leah is about to push her sisters too far. It's 1888. Sisters Kate and Maggie Fox are renowned mediums, famous for their self-proclaimed abilities to communicate with the dead. But after years in the limelight, they've begun to resent their eldest sister Leah, who manages their careers with an iron fist. And their anger is about to drive one of the famous siblings to make a shocking announcement. At a New York City concert hall during one of the Fox sisters' public appearances, Maggie Fox takes the stage to make a statement. She says that spiritualism was a fraud from beginning to end. Maggie goes on to confess that she herself is responsible for producing the taps and knocks by which the dead supposedly communicate, by cracking the joints of her toes. There was a shockwave through the entire crowd. But some of the sisters' faithful following find this startling revelation hard to believe, especially when it's revealed that Maggie received a large sum of money from a Catholic priest who's determined to disprove her claims of being able to speak with the dead, which he regards as blasphemy. The damage to the psychic sister's reputation is irreparable. And in 1890, less than two years after Maggie's outburst on stage, the eldest Fox sister, Leah, dies. Shortly after, both Kate and Maggie follow her to the grave. But the incredible story of the Fox siblings has one final surprise in store. In 1904, children were playing in the cellar of the Fox house, which was abandoned for many years, and one of the walls collapsed in, and out came the skeleton. Not long afterwards, a peddler's tin trunk was also discovered. 
buried in the basement. And the discovery seemed to prove that there had been a peddler that had visited that house and his spirit had come back to communicate with Kate and Maggie Fox. We may never know whether spirits do in fact exist. But for the people of Lilydale and followers of the spiritualist faith, this humble tin trunk seems to be proof that the Fox sisters' psychic powers were real. A Native American teepee, a covered wagon, and a 19th century locomotive are just some of the relics at the Kansas Museum of History in Topeka that pay homage to the rugged pioneers of the American frontier. And locked away in storage is an artifact that museum registrar Nikhala Zimmerman knows was designed to commemorate a man once hailed as a Kansas hero. It's a nice wool double-breasted jacket. The gold buttons have symbols on them and that are similar to the seal of the state of Kansas. And this is the hat that goes with the jacket. In fact, this official-looking garb once adorned a medical doctor who became known as the Admiral of the Kansas Navy. But this landlocked state has never had a navy. So what is the bizarre story behind this nautical uniform and the Midwestern physician who wore it? October 1917. After a brief and unsuccessful career selling medicinal remedies in the South, Dr. John R. Brinkley moves to the tiny town of Milford, Kansas, and opens up its first medical clinic. He hasn't been practicing long before a middle-aged farmer named Bill Stitzworth visits him with an embarrassing complaint. He was tired, he was run down, and most importantly, he was impotent. Listening to his patient's plight, Brinkley suddenly has a radical idea. While working as a house doctor at a meat processing plant, he was struck by the vigorous mating activities of young goats. And that gave Dr. Brinkley the idea, well, maybe I can transplant glands from a goat into my patient and rejuvenate him. Brinkley declares that he has just the solution this farmer is looking for. Bizarre as it sounds, he will surgically implant goat testicles into the patient's groin in the hopes that the animal glands will restore his virility. Stitzworth agrees and submits to the surgery. The doctor inserted the goat testicles, sewed him up, and all it took about 15 minutes. A few weeks later, Stitzworth returns to Brinkley's office with incredible news. He was happy to announce that his wife was pregnant. Word of this seeming miracle hits the press. And it's not long before Brinkley announces that goat testicles can actually cure a host of ailments. He had a list of 27 different things that a goat gland transplant could cure from dementia to fatigue to taking away wrinkles. Dr. Brinkley and his patients believed that he had found the fountain of youth. A savvy self-promoter, Brinkley launches his own radio station to broadcast his message of hope to listeners in all 50 states. Soon, the desperate and naive from all around the world are flocking to tiny Milford, Kansas. 
Over the next decade, Brinkley's goat testicle business becomes a multi-million dollar empire, and the doctor decides to share his wealth with the community where it all started. He really started to improve the town. He paved the streets. He put in a new sewer system. To thank Brinkley for his investment in the state, a group of Kansas businessmen decides to bestow upon him a new title, created especially in his honor, Admiral of the Kansas Navy. At the time, Dr. Brinkley was one of a few people in Kansas who did own a boat or a yacht. Delighted by this award, it's said that Brinkley orders this uniform, now at the Kansas Museum of History, to be designed and tailored for him. But what this newly minted millionaire doesn't know is that his unconventional medical practice is about to be put under the microscope. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's 1930. Dr. John Brinkley of Kansas has risen to prominence by promoting a radical new treatment for male impotence. He surgically implants goat testicles into his patient's abdomens, and amazingly, thousands of men who've undergone this procedure claim to be cured, their lost virility restored. But Ken Brinkley's unorthodox methods really work. Twelve years after Brinkley performed his first goat gland operation, the Kansas City Star publishes a series of shocking exposés revealing that the state's most famous surgeon never actually finished medical school. Following these scathing articles, the Kansas Board of Medical Examiners launches its own investigation. And what they find is even more disturbing. 42 people had died in his care. They died of things like infection or gangrene or blood poisoning. The board immediately revokes Dr. Brinkley's Kansas medical license and proclaiming his surgeries to be ineffective, dangerous, and potentially fatal. The American Medical Association also labels him a quack and a phony. People start coming forward with more and more malpractice claims, and eventually in 1941, he had to declare bankruptcy. By the age of 56, the infamous goat gland doctor is sick and penniless, having lost his empire, his fortune, and his good name. Not long after that, he died of a heart attack. And today, this naval uniform at the Kansas Museum of History serves as a fittingly odd tribute 
to a bizarre medical huckster who fooled many into believing the glands of goats to be a fountain of youth. Uniforms designed for the arid terrain of Afghanistan and saddles that have seen action in the Civil War are just some of the objects on display at the U.S. Army Quartermaster Museum, an institution in Fort Lee, Virginia, that honors the military personnel who supply provisions to troops worldwide. The Quartermaster Corps is the army behind the army. Without uniforms, without uh, um, fuel, without water, um, the army couldn't function. But according to curator Paul Mirando, one object on display here is far from standard army issued. The piece dates from 1840. It's roughly five inches, etched with three U.S. seals. This brass object from the U.S. military is implicated in a bizarre legend. So what was this bell used for? And how was it linked to an exotic and terrifying creature known as the Red Ghost? 1883, southeastern Arizona. An anguished cry cuts through the desert air. Startled, a woman rushes out of her frontier dwelling and beholds a horrifying sight. Lying on the ground is the mangled body of her neighbor. She discovers that her friend was trampled to death. The woman catches a glimpse of a massive, reddish-hued, horse-like creature as it runs off into the wilderness. As word of this tragedy spreads, other residents come forward, claiming they too have sighted this frightful beast. It is said to leave behind strange cloven hoof prints that don't belong to any known animal. No one knew what it was, and everywhere it went, it would leave behind these tufts of red hair. So it became known as the Red Ghost. Not long after, a group of prospectors spies the animal near Arizona's Verde River. Alarmed, they draw their weapons and shoot. But instead of felling the vicious creature, they only startle it, causing it to bolt. And something rolls off its back. And they discover that it's a human skull. Petrified, the prospectors realize that the skull is part of a human skeleton mounted on the mysterious creature. For the next 10 years, the beast is reported to roam the desert plains, carrying a headless rider on its back. Then, one morning in 1893, a farmer awakens to find it grazing in his yard. He draws his rifle and drops the beast with a single shot. For 10 years, residents of southeastern Arizona have been terrorized by a mysterious beast known only as the Red Ghost. It's said that the animal carries a headless rider on its back. Time after time, it eludes capture until one morning in 1893, when a local farmer shoots down this beast. So what is this sinister creature? When the farmer goes over to the beast, he discovers that it's a camel. Although there is no sign of its headless rider, 
It bears a saddle and bindings, which would have held the ghostly figure in place. And around the neck of the dead animal, the farmer finds a collar. Attached to it is a brass bell, like the one on display at the Quartermaster Museum in Fort Lee, Virginia. So what is the meaning of this bell? Over the years, historians pieced together an incredible story. 1843. It's the height of the Great Western Migration. U.S. soldiers are stationed throughout the sparsely settled frontier. And it's the quartermaster's job to supply these remote outposts with food, ammunition, and other necessities. But there's a problem. This area is known as the Great American Desert. Arid, dry conditions, very hot. In fact, the punishing climate and harsh terrain take a terrible toll on the military's pack horses and mules. But one veteran officer named Lieutenant George Crossman has a solution. Looking eastward to Africa and the Middle East, he proposes using the ultimate desert pack animal, camels. A camel can travel long distances using less water, less food, and can carry a significant amount of weight on its back. By the summer of 1856, 74 camels shipped from Egypt arrive on the shores of East Texas, marking the birth of a brand new regiment known as the U.S. Camel Corps. Outfitted in leather halters and decorative bells, like this one now at the U.S. Army Quartermaster Museum, they are immediately put to the test. They are put on a long supply trip from Texas to California, and they perform beautifully. But in 1866, with the advent of the Transcontinental Railroad, the need for pack animals becomes obsolete. Some of the army camels are sold to circuses or farms, and a few, like the Red Ghost, escape their confines to roam the desert. But who or what was the Red Ghost's infamous headless rider? The legend goes that there was a young soldier who was afraid of these camels. So his superiors strapped him to the back of this camel as a way to teach him a lesson. But the camel ran away. Unable to free himself from his runaway mount, it is said that the young soldier was doomed to ride the camel until he died of dehydration. And for years, his corpse was seen attached to the creature's back as it stalked the Arizona desert. Today, over 150 years after it was first worn, this small bronze bell on display at the U.S. Army Quartermaster Museum reminds visitors of the unruly beast that once roamed the deserts of the American West. Washington, D.C. The Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History houses some of the most treasured artifacts on the planet from dinosaur skeletons to the infamous Hope Diamond. But in this cavernous hall is an object that has been shrouded in mystery for hundreds of years. It is made of a hardened volcanic ash, and it's of a grayish color. This bizarre stone figure stands six and a half feet tall and weighs several tons. And as curator Adrian Kepler knows, 
it captivates visitors' attentions like nothing else. It's probably the artifact that has the most pictures taken of it. So who made this enormous statue? And what role did it play in the mysterious collapse of an ancient civilization? It's the 13th century. Isolated in the middle of the vast South Pacific Sea sits the tiny island of Rapa Nui, unknown to Western civilization. It would later be called Easter Island. Easter Island is certainly one of the most isolated places in the world. Yet as many as 9,000 indigenous people call this remote and rugged refuge home. Also known as the Rapa Nui, this flourishing tribe lives off the land and sea. They grew their own vegetables. They also used fish, lobster, and chickens. But more than anything else, what sustains the Rapa Nui on this remote island paradise are its abundant palm trees. Not only does the tribe eat its fruit, but they also thatch houses with its fronds and cut its trunk for firewood and canoes. To thank the gods for their thriving culture, the Rapa Nui build and worship enormous statues, sacred figures that they believe embody the spirits of their fallen ancestors. The Rapa Nui people held their ancestors in high regard, and actually they were considered gods. Over the course of four centuries, the Rapa Nui erect over 900 giant statues. But these godlike forms designed to protect the tribe from harm may actually be contributing to their downfall. April 5th, 1722. A Dutch explorer named Jacob Rogovine is sailing across the Pacific Ocean when he discovers a tiny island over 2,000 miles off the coast of Chile. Rogovine just happened to be in the area on Easter Day, and that's why it is known as Easter Island. And Rogovine was really quite startled by seeing all of these huge stone figures near the shore. When the explorer goes on land to investigate, he finds a barren landscape almost devoid of large trees. And there among the low bushes are groups of hungry natives who appear to be barely eking out a living. Little does he know that this impoverished tribe was once a thriving civilization. So what happened to the people of Easter Island? On a tiny isolated landmass in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, known as Easter Island, are a series of enormous stone monoliths. They were put there over 700 years ago by a tribe called the Rapa Nui to honor their ancestors. But what did these statues, designed to protect the island, have to do with the downfall of this ancient civilization? By the time Jacob Rogovine discovered Easter Island in 1722, its population had drastically declined, and its once lush landscape had become strangely barren. For hundreds of years, anthropologists ponder the mystery of what happened to this once flourishing society. Then, in the late 20th century, one prominent theory claims that the answer lies, in part, with the island's iconic monoliths. 
For the Rapa Nui, such massive figures were no simple task to build. Although the rock was not that difficult to carve, the size made them quite difficult. But that was not the most daunting challenge. Once complete, these huge stone idols, standing as high as 30 feet and weighing as much as 80 tons, had to be moved and erected along the shore. Anthropologists theorize that the Rapa Nui accomplished this feat with the help of what was once their greatest natural resource, trees. It is thought that trees were cut to build large sleds and the statue was moved by maybe 40 people pulling the sled. But tragically, it is now believed that felling large numbers of trees may have triggered an environmental catastrophe. There are some ideas that a lot of the trees were cut to pull the stone figures and that led to deforestation on Easter Island. In fact, experts think that over time, such a huge volume of trees were cut down, not only to use for sleds, but also for firewood, housing, and canoes, that eventually Easter Island experienced the most harrowing example of deforestation in history. Native plants and birds, the tribe's primary food sources, were driven into extinction. It's thought that this ecological collapse caused the Rapa Nui society to descend into a downward spiral of civil war, cannibalism, and self-destruction. It was really a very, very difficult time, and the Rapa Nui were decimated. So did these stone icons carved to protect the Rapa Nui inadvertently destroy them? The answer may never be known for sure, but long after the trees disappeared, these immense statues remain. And today, this lone monument at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History stands as a silent tribute to an ancient and spiritual people. Sixty miles east of Billings, Montana, the Little Bighorn River wends its way through a golden countryside. But this peaceful valley was once the site of one of the bloodiest battles on American soil. And at the Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument Visitor Center, a host of artifacts helps tell an epic story. Museum collection is made up of weapons, artwork, dioramas, Park ranger Jerry Jasmer knows that one unassuming array of small metal fragments reveals a terrible secret about this vicious fight, in which one side was utterly obliterated. They are cartridge cases that were dropped on the ground during the most famous historic battle in American history. So what really happened at the Battle of Little Bighorn? It's 1876. The United States is locked in a fierce battle with the Lakota Sioux tribe over land rights in present-day South Dakota. At stake is one of the most precious commodities on the planet, gold. President Ulysses S. Grant is under pressure to open up the land to mining. But according to an earlier treaty, the Lakota own the Black Hills and consider it a sacred site. And one Native American leader has united his people against U.S. intrusion, 
Lakota Chief Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull has determined that he wants to continue to follow his traditional way of life. And if he is not able to do that, then he might as well be dead. When the tribe refuses to vacate its ancestral land, federal troops prepare to seize the Black Hills by force. Leading the charge are General Alfred Terry and the seasoned Civil War veteran, Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. George Armstrong Custer is a Army officer who does love battle. He mentioned one time that he would fight a battle every day if he had that choice in his life. In May, Custer and Terry get word that a large party of Sioux warriors is gathering near the headwaters of the Little Bighorn River. So the two leaders devise a plan to quell Sitting Bull's rebellion. They decide that Custer's 7th Cavalry will approach the native camp from the south, while Terry will swoop in from the north, thereby surrounding the Sioux and preventing their escape. The overall goal of this strategy is to capture the village and give them the ultimatum of surrendering and going back onto the reservation. But when the two friends part, little do they know they will never see each other again, alive. A few weeks later, on the morning of June 27th, General Terry approaches the site of the Sioux camp from the north as planned only to find that it is completely deserted. And in the nearby hills, he and his men make a gruesome discovery. They discover bodies scattered about in various positions. And finally, when they come to what we know today as Last Stand Hill, they find the body of George Armstrong Custer. Custer and his immediate command of 210 men have been destroyed. So what happened at the Battle of Little Bighorn? June 1876. War is raging between the United States and the Lakota Sioux Tribe of the Northern Plains. Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer has been ordered to approach a Sioux encampment at the Little Bighorn River from the south. Meanwhile, his commanding officer, General Terry, will approach from the north. Together, their troops will ambush the Sioux. But when General Terry arrives, he encounters a shocking scene. Custer and his entire 210-man cavalry have been slaughtered. So what happened to Custer and his men? In an ensuing investigation, the U.S. Army determines that Custer arrived at the Sioux encampment before Terry's troops were in position and thinking that the natives numbered only a few hundred, took the rash decision to lead the attack on his own. Custer just did not have a complete intelligence report. It turns out that the warrior force was actually closer to 1,500 warriors. With Custer's men outnumbered more than seven to one, his troops were massacred in less than an hour. Custer's body was eventually found at the top of what is now known as Last Stand Hill. All around him were his fallen comrades and these shell casings. But when he fell, and how, 
is a mystery that endures to this day. The popular legend has it that Custer is killed near the end of the battle. Sword in hand, pistol in hand, last man down, as the native warriors overwhelm his position on Last Stand Hill. But we will probably never ever know precisely how Custer died. Today, at the Little Bighorn National Monument, these antique shell casings help to preserve the memory of the bloody battle known as Custer's Last Stand. From spiritual sisters to sacred statues, a soldier's bullets to a ghostly beast. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.